Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Today we're going to talk about the disturbing case of one of Canada's worst serial killers, Bruce MacArthur. With us being Canadians ourselves, I thought, why not start it off with a Canadian? This one is a fairly recent case. He was just arrested in 2018, and I was shocked that I hadn't heard about this one when it was happening at the time. But what I find especially interesting about this particular case is that he doesn't fit your standard serial killer profile. So not your standard cookie cutter serial killer. No, not at all. He literally could be your grandfather, your father, your brother, your neighbor, because looking at him, you wouldn't think that he could murder and dismember multiple people. And the way that he disposes of bodies is particularly shocking. And everyone thought it was just politeness we Canadians were known for. (laughs) Nope, not this time. Sorry, Canada. So Bruce MacArthur was born on October 5th, 1951. His full name is Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, but he went by Bruce. Oh, that is a wicked name. I know. You always have to be leery about those ones with all the names. He was born in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. (gasps) That's where I grew up. Just wait. I was waiting for your response (laughs) on this one. So he was raised on a farm in Argyle. I think that's how you say it. Near Woodville. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's where Melissa's from. Yeah. Um, in the Kawartha Lakes. Am I saying that right? Kawartha. Kawartha Lakes region. So I thought Melissa might be really interested to hear that this case is right by her hometown, right where she right where she grew up. So at the time, this was a very conservative community, and he had super religious parents. However, his parents were super religious in different religions, so this caused some friction. His mom was Irish Catholic, and his father was Scottish Presbyterian, and his parents would argue about religion. And Bruce, he would often, most of the time, side with his mother. So siding with his mom increased the wedge between him and his dad. His father was super strict, and Bruce later thought that his father sensed his homosexuality, and that that added to his harshness towards Bruce. Bruce, in turn, had a hard time accepting it as well, his homosexuality, and he didn't feel like it was accepted as normal at that time in rural Ontario, which it wasn't because it was actually against the law at that time. So this was something that, you know, from a young age, Bruce was struggling with. Well, and if your parents, if you're not feeling the love from your parents, it's hard to feel any love for yourself too, right? Exactly. And to figure all that kind of stuff out for sure. Um, He had a sister named Sandy and they stayed close throughout his life. And from what I researched, it sounded like, like they stayed close the whole time, even after she found out. So she knew what he was doing. (laughs) Not at the time, but I think afterwards. Okay. Yeah. So his parents, they fostered troubled children from Toronto, which is a big city kind of close to there. And they often had six to 10 kids at a time in their home, which is quite a bit. So the parents, they were known as good people by their neighbors. You know, they were these super religious family. They took in all these foster kids doing good stuff for the community. So they were known as good people. So his childhood isn't typical of what a lot of serial killers have who are abused and tortured as kids. And so this is one of those, you know, standard serial killer things that he doesn't really have. His father was strict, but not abusive. So that's where we kind of fall out of the cookie cutter mold. Where we start to. Yep, for sure. 
So this is this was kind of funny. Um, a Toronto Sun reporter named Brad Hunter he compared Bruce to quote unquote a taupe paint job in a suburban living room. So pretty basic <laughs> and boring, I guess is <laughs> is what that means. He didn't stand out in a crowd. Exactly. He basically, you know, was pretty boring and basic and by the rules as a kid type thing. So as a child, he attended a one-room schoolhouse just outside of Woodville. And I wondered, I wonder if it's still there. I wonder if you actually passed it. I bet you that schoolhouse is still standing. Probably. I actually know who renovated it. Really? (laughs) So you know exactly where I'm talking about. So that's where he went to school. That one-room schoolhouse just outside of Woodville. And he was known as a teacher's pet, and he was actually self-proclaimed as a teacher's pet. He was all about the rules. One of his classmates were interviewed, and he said that Bruce would never join in with them when they were getting into trouble, but instead, he would be happy to tattle on them. And he was proud of that. He was proud to be the tattletale. Oh, I'm sure that made him a lot of friends. Exactly. (laughs) So it was noted that he, quote-unquote, wasn't like the other boys. However, this was kind of interesting. He was known for winning singing contests in school. So he was quite the boy growing up. He was bused to Fenelon Falls Secondary School uh, when he got into secondary school. And this is where he met and started dating his future wife, Janice Campbell. He graduated in 1970 and later graduated in general business program in Ontario. And he married Janice when he was 23. So that's kind of all I could find about his childhood. There wasn't any really big incidences other than, you know, how he felt about his parents and, and his school time. So again, really veering from that cookie cutter kind of serial cutter. Yeah, exactly. Model. Yeah. 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 He didn't harm animals. There was no report of bedwetting or, you know, getting hit on the head as yeah. a child or any of those things that sometimes will contribute. No really overt bullying or. Right. Yeah. Okay. He was the one who was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like the hall monitor at school, right? What are you doing out of class type of thing. So, But as an adult, he had a few different jobs. And any of our fellow Canadians, do you remember Eaton's Department Store? Yes. <laughs> Eaton's was great. So he worked for Eaton's Department Store as a buyer's assistant in 1973. And this was actually right in downtown Toronto. And at this time, just a few blocks away from where he worked, there was a gay village emerging on Young Street between College and Wellesley Streets. So at this time, it was just kind of a new thing because same-sex behavior had just been decriminalized in 1969. So it was kind of a brand new thing. And he was working just a few blocks away from this gay village. So in 1978, he left Eaton's to be a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks. So again, if you're Canadian, you'll know exactly what McGregor Socks are. I don't know if they have those, you know, in other countries, but he would go around and solicit the stores to sell McGregor Socks out of their stores. And then later he became a merchandising rep for Stanfield's Garment Company. So that was kind of what he did at the beginning of his career. Was he all about his appearance? Was that his thing? Not that I, was not that like... I saw. No, he okay. looked pretty standard. Like by the time he, you know, by the time we get into the killings, he just looks like a grandpa, you know, just like your normal. Okay. So he wasn't like that guy that has like the throat handkerchief and. No, I don't think he was a GQ no. you know, okay. cover, cover <laughs> model or anything like that. But that's where he had kind of made his living at the beginning. In the mid-70s, his father was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he was put into a nursing home. And at this time, once his father was put into this nursing home, his mom became interested in another man. And this upset Bruce, so he became closer to his father at this time. Which actually kind of made this a little more bizarre to me, because I thought, well, maybe he was getting some closure with his father, you know, by coming closer to him, so I'm not sure why the tale unfolds the way that it does. 
but he spent his whole life not getting along with his father and then some new guy enters the scene and that's what causes him to create a relationship with his father exactly and his father had developed a brain tumor at that time as well so okay but not long after that his mother she actually passed away first she died of cancer in 1978 and then his father died in 1981 so just a couple of years later so then in 1979 bruce and janice moved into a house in oshawa ontario and by 1981, so just three years later, they had a daughter and a son. And I just felt like maybe I wouldn't include their names in here because, you know, if this was your dad, I don't know if I would want my name being, <laughs> being said, listed yeah. either yet. And at this time, so now he's, you know, he's married, living a suburban life, you know, a son and a daughter. And he starts to become very active in his church. And I was wondering if this was a way for him to try to avoid his same-sex attractions. He became really involved. Like an overcompensation? Kind of, yeah, it sounded like. So it wasn't until the late 90s that Bruce's life really began to change. It had been pretty normal up until now on paper. So in 1993, his job in the clothing industry ended, and he began to have sexual affairs with men. He later came out to his wife, and they stayed living together for a while. To keep up appearances, yeah. Yeah. And also at this time, they had started to experience a lot of financial difficulties, so maybe financially it was hard for them to separate at that time. But part of this, this is kind of interesting, part of his financial difficulty was because of some legal issues involving their teenage son. So their teenage son had begun obsessively making obscene phone calls to women he didn't know. So it's a nice pastime. Yep. (laughs) So Bruce and his wife had to start paying for lawyers and other legal fees. And that became a big expense for Bruce and his wife at that time. Well, that's a huge stressor. A huge stressor. So is that going to lead into what's going to happen next? No, we don't really come back to this part. Yeah, just it was noted that this was part of why they were having financial problems at that time. So eventually they mortgaged their home in 1997 and Bruce and his wife, they separated that same year. And then by 1999, two years later, they declared bankruptcy. So now at this point, things are not going so well for Bruce and his family. Well, in the late 80s, that's when everybody was going bankrupt, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, this is the late 90s. This is 1999. Sorry, late 90s. Yeah. 1999 is when they went bankrupt. So after this, Bruce decided to move to Toronto, like right into Toronto, because there was no gay community in Oshawa at that time. So he started to frequent the bars at of Church and Wellesley. Am I saying that right? Wellesley? Wellesley, yeah. Yeah. Which is Toronto's gay village. And at this time, he began to pursue a four-year relationship with a man. So still sounding pretty normal. Um, when they broke up and his divorce was finalized, he actually started to see a psychiatrist. And he was prescribed Prozac for several months. Eventually, he started a landscaping company named Artistic Design. And it sounded like it was doing pretty well, his landscaping company. Pretty soon, he had dozens of clients. Things were looking up. He was starting to make some money. Things were going good. But we will come back to this landscaping business that he had. So brace yourself. It's coming. I know where this is going. (laughs) So before he gets into his string of like really well-known murders, he did have this first attack, and I thought it was worth mentioning. So in Halloween 2001, a few weeks after his 50th birthday, he followed actor-model Mark Henderson into his apartment. Henderson had invited him in to come and see his Halloween costume, because this was right on Halloween. And apparently Bruce often carried an iron pipe with him, which I thought was kind of bizarre. That is so bizarre. Who does that? Like, hang on a second, Mel. I got to get my iron pipe out of my purse before we go for a walk. Where Um, do you even carry that? I don't know. That's really bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. In your belt buckle. 
like I, in your back pocket how do you carry it do you know? get a special loop made for your belt <laughs> maybe i'm not sure but it was noted that he often carried this iron pipe so i just thought that was kind of strange so as they're walking into mark's apartment bruce pulls out this pipe and he strikes him several times from behind so henderson tried to fight back before losing consciousness when henderson woke he called 911 it was taken to saint michael's hospital he suffered multiple injuries to the back of his head and body. He needed stitches on the back of his head and fingers, which I assume that would have been defensive wounds. And he needed six weeks of physiotherapy as well. Surprisingly, Bruce turned himself in not long after the attack. Oh, well, that's true to form. That's what he did as a kid, right? He had to tattle on everybody. So that's tattling right. on yourself. That's right. And it made me wonder, was he trying to fight what was going on inside? You know, he was trying to be good. He was going to church. He had tried therapy. He turned himself in right after this attack. Like, was it a cry for help? So he was trying to, to be a good guy. Yeah, other than carrying a yeah. pipe around and smashing people in the back of the head. You think if you him. wanted to avoid temptation, that's where you would leave. You'd leave the pipe at home. Leave your pipe at home. Yeah. So he said he didn't remember the incident or why he did it. But that was kind of suspicious to me because how do you turn yourself in if you don't remember the incident? But yeah, that doesn't add up. No, but he pled guilty to the charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. And our good old justice system, he gets the slap on the wrist. No jail time. No jail time. Well, he turned himself in, Christy. He did. Yeah. <laughs> All tattletales should be rewarded, That's right. even if it's on yourself. <laughs> So on April 11th, 2003, he was given a conditional sentence of 729 days. And I'll explain what that means, a conditional sentence. The further charges of carrying a concealed weapon was withdrawn. So he did have it down his pant leg. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Where do you conceal a lead pipe? In your jacket? I don't know yeah, where. Up your sleeve? Oh, yeah. Because then you could just like fling that yeah. out and it's right there. I'm going with sleeve. Maybe it was in his sleeve. I couldn't find out that part where it was actually concealed. But those charges got dropped anyways. Crown attorney originally wanted jail time, but agreed to conditional sentencing after psychiatric and presenting reports said that he was unlikely to reoffend. Oh. Unlikely. Where's that psychiatrist now? <laughs> I know. Can you imagine being that psychiatrist and oh, then afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. Because wait till you hear what he does. So Henderson, the victim, he was too traumatized to submit a victim impact statement for sentencing. And you can't really blame him, but it's, you know, unknown if that would have altered his sentencing somehow. Oh, for sure it would have. Mm -hmm. And so about this incident, Bruce is quoted saying, Well, I just want to apologize to the court for what happened. My life's been kind of a mess in the last year and a half, not knowing what's going to happen and what happened to me. I'd like to apologize to the victim. I don't... I wouldn't know what to say other than I'm sorry and for all the pain and anguish I've caused him. So since there's your good hall monitor. Right. And you know what? Hasn't it been a rough year and a half for all of us? And we don't all go around smacking people with lead pipes. So. Leave them at home. Right. So they thought that his actions might have been in part a result of him taking his anti-seizure medication with amyl nitrate, which is a muscle relaxer sometimes taken recreationally before sex. He ended up avoiding prison for this. He didn't need to go to prison, they thought. His conditional sentencing, what that was, is his first year of sentencing was under house arrest, followed by a six-month curfew and three years probation. So, so who enforces that? I would assume the Toronto police would. Like ankle bracelet house, house yeah, arrest? Yeah, I'm not but, sure. Would that even have existed I'm back then? I'm not sure if it did back then, yeah. Because so, he's not living with anybody at the time. No, he was living on his own. So who enforces it? Yeah, they're probably not monitoring him yeah. that much. 
There was a few other things that were listed on there. He was barred from church in Wellesley except for work and medical appointments. And he had to stay 10 meters, or 33 feet for our American listeners, away from the victim's home and workplace. He wasn't allowed to spend time with male prostitutes. He was forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years, although he murders people without guns anyways, so that's not a big deal. And he couldn't purchase, possess, or consume drugs without a prescription. He did have to submit his DNA to a database, which really didn't help the investigation at first, because at first there was no bodies. And he had to have psychological and psychiatric counseling that included anger management. At sentencing, the judge quoted saying, It sounds to me like you're a pretty good person, and it sounds to me like you're not going to be back here anyway. So wrong. So So very, very wrong. (laughs) It gets way worse. But worse than all of this is in 2014, he was granted a record suspension, and the conviction was expunged from his record. Oh, so it won't even show up on a prior. This attack would not appear in a criminal record check on him anymore. So it was as if it didn't even happen. And I'm not sure how he got granted that. I couldn't find out the details on that. But well, you would have to appeal for it, probably. Yeah. 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 So now he's all in the clear. Free man to go do what he wants. So we'll fast forward seven years from when he got his sentencing and things start to take a much darker turn. There are reports of alleged assault during those seven years, but no charges. So there's nothing that sticks for that seven year period. So we don't really know for sure what's happening during that time. In 2002, when this assault case was still in court, he had registered with Recon, a gay fetish dating site for men into BDSM. So he was into the rough stuff. His profile noted that he was interested in submissive men of all ages. He liked to be the dominator. And your first clue was the pipe he carries around with him. Exactly. He also joined lots of other gay dating sites like Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grindr, Bear 411, Bear Force, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, and Growler. Oh, those are good names. Right? Yeah, I learned something new (laughs) researching this. He used variations of the name Silver Fox for his usernames on these sites. And he started to get a reputation within the gay community for being rough and violent. It didn't take too long until people knew that. You know, Silver Fox was a was a violent one, a rough one. So had he just given up on his whole hall monitor attitude now? He was kind of dropping the, I guess so, the goody you know, two-shoes play. He's living like right by the gay village and he's getting out some repressed things, I think, yeah. here. And no contact with his family at this time? or um, No, I never heard that he okay. didn't have contact with his family. So he's still hanging out with his grandkids and yep. Silver yep. Fox. Yeah. So uh, totally a double life. Yeah. Double life. There was an incident when he was asked to leave a coffee house in the gay village and he got extremely angry. So those anger management classes didn't really pay off. He ended up knocking off all the glasses off the table and he started yelling homophobic comments, which made me question, could his future murders been a way of him trying to kill the gay out of himself? Why would he start yelling all these homophobic comments? So he had all of these psychological assessments. Did anything come up with bipolar or personality disorder? They gave him Prozac. Wow. Yeah. Soon, this anger and violence escalated into murder, and he had a clear victim type. He targeted vulnerable individuals that he believed no one would miss or that wouldn't be traced back to him. They were all gay men, mostly immigrants to Canada, and many of them living double lives, hiding their sexuality, or they were homeless. So they were easy to hide. Nobody was looking for them right away. Exactly, yeah. Or at least not in those areas where he had them. Yeah. Nearly all of them were in their 40s and 50s, and most were of Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. Most had beards and frequented a leather bar called the Black Eagle. 
He would frequent bars in the gay village, taking note of the clientele, so basically hunting for a victim. He would lure his victims to his apartment under the pretense of submissive sex. It would start off consensual, but would end up with him strangling his victims to death. His MO was very ritualistic. He would strangle them with a rope tightened using a metal bar, and I wondered if that's the same metal bar from the first attack. Nobody can find the evidence if he carried it with you all yep. the time. Yeah, so he would tighten up that rope, his metal bar, to strangle them. Well, and really interesting that he's super ritualistic, because wasn't that one of the traits that you said that he had as a child, that he just liked to follow rules all yep. the time? So seeing some of that come through, he probably had a lot of comfort from just following the routine. The routine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Once they were dead, he would perform sexual acts with the bodies and he would take photographs of them. He saved the digital photographs to be able to relive his crimes. He even wrapped one of them in a fur coat and placed a cigar in his mouth for the photo. He often would shave their heads or beards and he also collected mementos, jewelry, the facial hair that he shaved off and items of clothing. So did he shave the, all their faces to look the same? Like, was he giving them all the same haircut? I don't know. It didn't say that, but he, he wanted to keep the hair. Like, mm -hmm. they later found all the it hair was a trophy. that he had shaved off. Yeah. So for whatever reason, the facial hair, he liked that. Okay. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the victims. And I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I pronunciate them incorrectly. Some of them are a little bit harder of names for me. So I'll do my best, but I apologize ahead of time because I'm never... so glad it's you and not me. <laughs> I know. I never want to show any disrespect to a victim. And so, so it's done with love. We'll just say that. So the first to go missing, because they didn't find the bodies one at a time. It was, they found all the bodies at the same time. So we're just going back on the timeline of when they went missing. And that's how we know their timelines. So the first to go missing was Skanda Navaratnam, and he was 40 years old. He was last seen September 6, 2010, in the early morning leaving Zippers, which was a gay bar with an unknown man. So that's where he was last seen. He was... Silver Fox. Yes, with the Silver Fox. He was romantically involved with Bruce, and he even worked for him at his landscaping company in 2008. He was a refugee from Sri Lanka, and he had no family in Canada. So he fit his profile perfectly. He had no family there. Nobody would know that he's missing. Second was Bazir Fazi, and he was age 42. So this was just a few months later because the first one was in September and this was in December. So December 28, 2010, he was last seen leaving his work. But bank records put him back at the Black Eagle Bar and Steamworks Bathhouse that same night. So that's why they kind of know he went missing that night. There was no other records after that. He was an immigrant from Afghanistan, and he kept his gay life hidden from his family, including his wife and kids. So he did have a family. A colleague said he had been working overtime to make sure his two daughters had a nice Christmas, which Aww. just broke my heart because this was just a few days after Christmas, like three days later. All and that then family stress of Christmas yeah, sent I know. him off to the gay bar to live his dual life. Probably, yeah. Well, his, yeah. Because he wasn't, he wasn't in a, really, a relationship with Bruce, but he yeah. was seen leaving, yeah, with a strange man. So the third victim was Mahid Kahan, and he was 58 years old, and he was last seen October 18th, 2012. So this was two years later in the gay village near Young Street and Alexander Street, and he was reported by his adult son. He was an immigrant of Afghanistan, and he fled to Canada with his wife and children in the late 80s, but had since divorced his wife. He was the son of a Muslim cleric, so he had not come out to his family, and he had romantically pursued Bruce MacArthur, so he was in a bit of relationship with Bruce at the time. 
So that's a pretty big cool off period for Bruce. Two years. Two years. Yeah. He did the two kind of back to back. And then, yeah. And then there was the two years in between, which isn't unheard of with serial no, killers to sometimes go common. dormant. Yeah. For a little while. So at this point, the Toronto police decided to launch a task force dubbed Project Houston. They had no real leads what had happened to these first three men. In 2018, W5 reported that a man had posted on a cannibal website called Zambian Meat in 2012 at the same time that he had killed and eaten a man in Toronto. And this is what led to the formation of Project Houston. So they had already linked these three men together yeah. just by the motives they disappeared in the gay bar. They Right. Okay. Yeah. And then once they found out that someone had posted on this Zambian meat that they had killed and eaten a man in Toronto, they thought, well, maybe we better look more into this and find out what's happening. So an anonymous tip linked Bruce to Skanda and Mahid, and this led the police to start to actually question Bruce. Bruce admitted to knowing both men and interacted regularly with Skanda at a gay bar, but denied being in a relationship with him. He also admitted to employing Mahid and having a sexual relationship with him, but he said he had broken it off. So Project Houston ended with no evidence linked to the disappearances, no reason to conclude that crimes had been committed or that there were even any viable suspects. And then in 2016, the case summary said that there was still nothing to explain what had happened to these men. There was no bodies. So they couldn't say if they had just left because they were refugees, if they had moved... Well, in the case of the one, he was the employer. So it's not like any employers were reporting that they weren't missing. Exactly. Work or... Yeah. But I did wonder, I wonder if this would have been different if they were missing women, if it would have been treated any differently. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. With it being There's a ton of missing men, women, too, yeah, though. That is true. So what does Bruce do? He continues his reign of terror with police not paying any particular notice. Because remember, he had a clean record. That first attack had been expunged from his records. So when the police went to talk to him about these three men, he seemed like he, he was no in the motive. clear. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's a, a fine guy. He's got his own business. He's working hard. He actually employed one of the men. So they weren't too worried about Bruce at the beginning. Even though he has a connection with two of the victims. Right. Next to go missing is Sharush Mamoudi. He was age 50 and he was last seen August 14th, 2015. So this is another couple of years later. And he was last seen near his home in the South Cedarbury neighborhood. He was a manufacturing plant worker. He lived with his wife. He was a refugee from Iran. And he had no family in Canada until he met his wife. He was not originally connected to the gay scene. He hid it from his wife. So this is making it harder for them to connect these murders as well, mm -hmm. because most of them are hiding that part of their life. He had had a four-year relationship with a transgender woman before meeting his wife, but that wasn't well known either. So then the next two that I'm going to talk about, they were never reported missing, but they were found with the remains of the others. And so I wanted to list them chronologically, even though they hadn't been reported missing at okay. the time. So Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam, he was age 37 and he was a refugee from Sri Lanka. When his deportation order was given, he went into hiding. He worked as a cleaner and a mover and Bruce killed him on or about January 6, 2016. So it was, you know, another year. Well, not even a full year, maybe six, seven months later from the last one. So starting to see an escalation. Yeah. They're starting to come closer together. A little bit closer. Yeah. yeah. And then after that was Dean Lisowick. He was age 43 or 44. It was hard for them to tell because he was a resident of Toronto's shelter system. But he was remembered as very respectful and he had struggled with substance abuse. He had worked as a prostitute, but was working more as a cleaner or laborer. 
and he was murdered by Bruce on or about April 23rd, 2016. So that was just four months later from Bruce Well, if you, you've been interviewed by the police and they let you go and you think, well, I can get away with it then, right? So you can see right. an escalation, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And you can see why these two weren't reported missing because Karushna, he was hiding from a deportation order. Mm-hmm. And Dean, he was a resident of the shelter system. So for him to not show up at the shelter wouldn't have you know, caused any red flags, right? So these yeah. were easy targets. He had definite MO of his victims that he wanted. Okay, so if that wasn't enough, there's another one. Salim Essen, he was reported missing. He was age 44, and he was last seen March 20th, 2017. So this was almost a year later. And he was last seen near just west of the gay village, but he wasn't reported missing until April 20th by a friend. He was last seen in March, but not reported missing until April. A friend said that he had an unhealthy relationship, and so he would stay with different friends. So that's why it took a while for them to realize that he was missing, because he would kind of go from friend to friend. He was a Turkish citizen, and he came to Canada to be with a partner that he met in Turkey. He also struggled with addiction, but was getting it under control. And this part just kind of breaks my heart. He had just completed a certificate course in peer counseling from St. Stephen's Community House just before he had disappeared. So he was trying to turn his life around. So he was getting it together. He was just starting to get it together. Yeah, he just finished this course. He's going to help out his peers and been struggling with all these things. So that kind of broke my heart to hear that he was just starting to make these good changes in his life. And then he... He met the gross and disgusting Bruce, and that was it. Silver Fox. Yep. Silver Fox. We hate you, Silver Fox. (laughs) Okay, and then his last victim was Andrew Kinsman. He was age 49, and he was last seen on June 26th in 2017, the day after the Pride Parade, near his residence south of the gay village. So they're all, he's meeting them all in this gay village. Andrew was described as happy, upbeat, stable, and responsible. He worked as a superintendent of his building, and he was a community volunteer. So how did this guy, this guy didn't meet the MO of the rest of them? He didn't. And this is why I think it was his last victim. This is what was Bruce's demise. He kind of got overconfident. I think he got overconfident. He knew Bruce for at least a decade. So Andrew and him had known each other for a while. And I don't know if Bruce had been fighting it for a while, but this goes way back to when he was a bartender at the Black Eagle. They knew each other then. He was seen carrying bags of debris on one of Bruce's landscaping projects in 2011. So he had worked for Bruce a little bit at two. And he had been in a sexual relationship with Bruce for some time and he was openly gay. So again, it doesn't really fit his regular profile. He wasn't hiding his lifestyle. And so, so much easier to find, right? Somebody's going to report him missing. Yeah. And he was connected with the gay community at that time in Toronto. His friends felt that he would never suddenly leave, especially without his cat or his prescription meds, because he was pretty responsible. He had a job. He had this pet that they said he took really good care of all the time. And he always notified families or friends whenever he was going somewhere. He was active on social media, but investigators found his cell phone was turned off the day that he disappeared. So that was another red flag. So now you've got three people that are can be traced back to Bruce. Right. Directly to Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of 2017, so this was like in June that Andrew went missing, police created a new task force called Project PRISM, and that was to investigate the disappearances of Andrew and Salim. 
They also looked for connections to Project Houston. So they thought maybe Project Prism and Project Houston is connected. So they were looking back at that as well at the time. And the gay community at this time, they started to hear more and more about all these men that had gone missing and they did not feel safe and they were voicing their concerns. You can read lots about that, kind of the gay community versus the Toronto police at that time. Police said that Andrew's disappearance was central to the creation of Project Prism because a crucial piece of evidence was recovered because he was reported missing within 72 hours of disappearing because he did have a job and he had friends and he was on social media and all these things. The community thought it was because he was a white victim, unlike the majority of the other victims. So this, again, is causing more uproar in Toronto at that time. So they think that there's not only sexual orientation motivation to not find them, but now they didn't care because about them most because of them racial. were yeah, Middle Eastern or Asian yeah. descent. So now there's a white man that's gone missing. Now we and, pay attention. Right. And so that's how the community was feeling at that time. They were outraged. Police, they found the name of the name Bruce written on Andrew's calendar for June 26, which was the day that he was last seen. So this was a big clue for the police because on his calendar it said Bruce. Well, and this is going to relate them back to that Houston project, right? Because Bruce had already been interviewed for those two other missing men. Right. He would have been connected there. So there was surveillance video outside of Andrew's residence showed a person matching Bruce's appearance driving a red 2004 Dodge Caravan, which matched the type of vehicle that Bruce drove. 6,000 similar models in Toronto, but only five were registered to a person named Bruce of that 2004 Dodge Caravan. So out of the 6,000, five were registered to, to Oh, well, that's going to narrow it down. That's going to narrow it down a lot. Yep. So they matched the van to a surveillance video outside of Bruce's apartment, but it was no longer at his residence. They later found the vehicle at a shop and were able to find trace amounts of blood inside, and the blood was Andrew's. They also found DNA from Salim Essen. So mm. this was... Bingo! Yeah, this was big for them. Police were able to then get a warrant to search Bruce's apartment, and eventually they got a partial download from Bruce's computer, a bunch of deleted files of postmortem photos of the victims. Round-the-clock surveillance was put on Bruce with instructions to immediately arrest him if he was seen alone with anyone. And this is where I'm confused. If they found these postmortem photos of the victims, why wasn't he arrested right away? Well, you know, that's what normal people keep on their computer, right? Right? Just random... Like, yeah. where do they think he's getting these bodies from to pose with? Yeah. Did they think... Yeah. I'm not sure why he wasn't arrested Or right was away. there something with the search warrant? Because oftentimes in cases, which is so frustrating, that they didn't obtain the right search warrant, but they found this evidence kind of haphazardly, and then they can't actually do an arrest warrant because they didn't obtain the evidence in the correct manner. That's right. And I think yeah. that's, you know, from what I read, it sounded like they wanted to make sure they got him. They wanted to make sure they had it in the bag before they arrested him. So it didn't take too long. On January 18th, because now they're surveillancing him, a police saw a young man enter Bruce's apartment, and they believed that that man's life was at risk. At this point, pretty much anyone that Bruce is alone with in his apartment is probably <laughs> at risk. Police entered the apartment and found a man restrained on the bed. Bruce had put a black bag over his head without holes in it to see or breathe and was in the process of taping his mouth shut when the police entered. Oh, goodness. Yes. And if you go online, you can actually see pictures of his bed. It's got big metal posts and you can kind of see where he was arrested. And yeah, that'll freak you out a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Bruce was finally arrested at age 66. What a late bloomer. Right. For a serial murderer. Yeah. We're going to talk about that too, actually, because that is late. Yeah. That is late to be arrested for this type of thing. 
Police seized five cell phones, five computers, three digital cameras, and about a dozen USB flash drives from his apartment. Oh, he had gone full tilt then, yeah. right? Yeah, like they found this was it. now his profession. Yeah, there's no getting out of this yeah. now. He was first charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the presumed death of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. The man they saved was from the Middle East. He was married, but not out to his family, and he had met Bruce on a dating app. They had met a few times before to have sex, but this time he agreed to be handcuffed to Bruce's bed, but things were taking a turn when police entered. And you can watch videos and read statements of some of the other victims who survived Bruce's attacks. You can find those online. There's just not enough time in our yeah. podcast to cover them all. How grateful would he have been? Yeah, to that find the police out, were can actually listen, like watching and intervened. Yeah, and then, and to then find to out find later, out, yeah, that oh, this guy actually has murdered a whole bunch of people yeah. in the exact same way that he just picked you up. Yeah, like I was next in line. Yeah, part of the reason Bruce went so long without being caught was because each victim was classified as a missing person. At this time, and this was hard to believe, but Toronto did not have a specialized missing persons task force. So that kind of made it a little bit harder. They weren't, you know, it was easier they for things to fall. They didn't have it all together then. Yeah, things were falling through the cracks yeah. and there was no bodies to find. But eventually they found them all. So remember that landscaping business that Bruce had that I talked about oh, at I the beginning? I knew you were going there. <laughs> I knew it. I know. Once he was done with his victims, he would do his photo shoot. He'd have sex with the bodies, whatever he wanted to do when he so was done gross. with them. He dismembered their bodies and buried the body pieces in the gardens and planters at his client's residence. Can Could you, you imagine? Oh, I was just going to say, can you oh. imagine? Yeah, so be careful who you hire to do your landscaping. Oh, I'm just going to plant a tree over here. And what is that? A foot? I know. So the majority of it was found on one property. Karen Fraser and Ron Smith owned one of the properties that Bruce and his son had worked at, the Mallory Crescent residence in the Lee Side neighborhood of Toronto. They had an arrangement for Bruce to store tools and Christmas decorations and stuff in the garage in place for garden work. This is where he, because he's just living in an apartment, right? Right. And so he's like, I'll do your gardening if you let me use your, your garage and your shed. Well, and you said he was working with his son at this time. Yes. So how did his son not pick up on, hey, I'm burying the body underneath the rose bushes over here? I don't know. There, it doesn't really say what his son knew or didn't. But remember, his son had been arrested for making oh. these obscene phone calls yeah, to women. He was a little so bit off, maybe too. Yeah, I'm not sure. And this is where that hair that we had talked about, mm. this is where it was found, was in the shed at... This is where he kept his mementos. Yeah. Well, the hair was found yeah. there. I, there might have been stuff in his apartment. I'm not mm. sure. You know, the jewelry and other things that he had kept. So multiple bodies were found in the planters around their property. And you can see, like, if you go online, you can watch news reports and stuff where they're taking these giant, you know, those really big planters that you can hardly yeah. move. That's where he had some of these body parts was in those. And they also found bodies in the ravine behind their property. So this was a perfect setup for Bruce. He had their property to... And he got paid for it. Yeah. Yep. He got paid. Good gig. Yeah. Well, I think this house is where the, he had switched. He was doing yard work for them if he could use their property to store oh, his stuff. Okay. He was having a good business by this time yeah. and he had this place to store all his things, including the pieces of bodies that he had dismembered. Well, and then you say like, oh, well, I'll, I'll upkeep your gardens for you if you let me store my stuff here. And then he has no issue with other people digging in the gardens. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. a win-win for him for sure. The police searched the ravine for 10 days, the ravine behind the house, and they found human remains almost every single day of the search. So they just kept like 10 days straight. Oh. 
taken out body parts. That would have been awful to go back. Hopefully they switched out the workers there. But could you imagine as a police officer going back and investigating day after day and just keep finding Finding bodies more and more day after day? Yeah. And nothing like this had happened in Toronto at this time. Kind of their first big thing. Not their first murder, but something Mm -hmm. to this scale. The big planters, they had to be thawed. At this point, they were frozen to the ground. And cadaver dogs had a hard time picking up the scent since the earth was so frozen. Anyone who lives in Canada knows how cold it gets out here. So I I can totally understand that if anyone else is thinking, what do you mean it was so frozen? Yeah. No, it's frozen solid. It's frozen solid. In Canada, sometimes the air hurts your face. (laughs) (laughs) So police brought in big heaters to start thawing the ground. They also searched 75 other properties connected to Bruce MacArthur, but most of the stuff was found here. Between Bruce's apartment and the search of the Leaside home, this case made up the largest forensic investigation performed by the Toronto police at the time. On April 16th, 2018, Bruce MacArthur was charged with the final and eighth charge of first-degree murder after Karishna had finally been identified via his post-mortem photos. So it's rare for police to release a postmortem photo, but they needed help to identify him. So they actually released mm-hmm. them. And you can see those online too. Bruce pled guilty to all eight murders and he was sentenced to life in prison. Well, with, there's that tattletale yeah, right? again. Tell yeah. it on himself. Yeah, I'm going to plead guilty. I mean, what can you do yeah. at this point? The evidence is there. Right? All the photos that, you know, you've got all these mementos, you've got their hair, their well, bodies got are everywhere. Bar with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what can you do at this time? Yeah. So he did plead guilty. And he was sentenced to life in prison with possibility of parole in 25 years. That is awful. I know. We're going to talk about that, too. The judge took into account his age and only gave him one life sentence. Which I say, why? Yeah. Why do that? Give him eight life sentences. That's right. 400 years. You're in there. That tells me that if I wait until I'm 80 to murder somebody, then. Yeah. (laughs) That is okay. Right? You just have to be patient for your revenge. (laughs) Uh, There was no need to have a trial since he had pled guilty. It was noticed that he spared the victims of the families from a trial. But that's not what a parole does. Like eligibility of a parole, the victim's families have to go back every time he comes up for parole to make a case against it. I know it's crazy. I don't understand that reasoning of, oh, he's, you know, 66 years old. Let's just give him one life sentence with eligibility for parole. So Justice John McMahon told the court while delivering this sentence, he said, I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that these men died a slow and painful death by ligature strangulation for the sexual gratification of Mr. MacArthur. All or most of the victims were vulnerable individuals who were lured to their deaths, no doubt on the promise of consensual sexual activity. The accused exploited his victim's vulnerability, whether they involved immigration concerns, mental health challenges, or people living a secretive double life. So he totally exploited all of their weaknesses. Yeah. 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 To lure them in. Yeah. He he hunted them. Mm -hmm. You know, he waited until he found the right victims until the end. That last one he had messed up on, I think. When given the chance to address the court, Bruce quietly said, no, your honor, I've discussed this with my counsel. So he wouldn't even say anything at the end there. Well, what could he say for himself? Right. McMahon continued to say, the victims were not only used for the accused gratification in life, but also in death. He staged six of his victims in perverse and degrading fashions and then photographed them. These eight innocent victims then faced the greatest postmortem indignity. Each was systematically cut up into pieces and buried in planters or in the ground in an unsuspecting person's property in Leaside. 
The ability to decapitate and dismember his victims and do it repeatedly is pure evil. Well, it's dirtbag. Yeah, murderer dirtbag. <laughs> and remember, the original attack, the judge had said, I don't think I'll see you back here again. And then we jumped to this. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Criminologist and Western University professor Michael Arntfield said that the alleged method of disposal suggested a sophisticated killer who had developed his craft and as most serial killers begin in their 20s, the crimes could go back several decades and represent the longest run of a serial killer on record. So there is that possibility that he started killing decades earlier, but we have no evidence to support that. And he's not copying to it because he's not saying anything to the judge. Right. I have nothing more to say. Yeah. Right. But they're pretty, I don't want to say confident, but said there is a strong possibility that he's been doing this since well, a long time before possibly decades before because most of them start you know in their 20s yeah yeah or he just really isn't one of those cookie cutter serial killers and he was a late bloomer and started later he we don't really know repressed everything for so long right so let's talk about this for a minute i have a few things that i want to point out bruce was such an unlikely suspect and he could have been one of the most prolific gay serial killers in canada he didn't meet the mold, right? Right, exactly. And that's the problem sometimes with creating a mold is that we don't catch those outliers. Right, exactly. Yeah. He was described as friendly, a cheerful guy, a doting grandfather even, and he had had a decent childhood. Karen Fraser, the lady who owned the house, the Lee Side house where all the bodies were found, she said he was kind and generous to them and she was quoted saying, Well, sure, they're holding them. <laughs> they're hiding the bodies. Yeah, I'm sure he was real nice. <laughs> yeah. He didn't want to take you off and lose his job. But she was quoted saying, he was the best friend, neighbor, relative, anyone could want. Wait, he's a relative? Well, someone's relative, oh, okay. right? Like he would be like, you know, a good friend, a good neighbor, a good family member. Yeah, yeah sure. he was just a stand-up guy. Just not a good date. Yeah, exactly. Not a good date. His Facebook was filled with recipes, different videos of all these different recipes and stuff. He had cat pictures. He had photos of his children and his grandchildren. There was relaxed pictures of himself on vacation and at dinner parties. So to look at his Facebook account, you would just think, oh, he's this grandpa living his best life type of a thing. That makes it all the more creepier, right? Because right? it yeah. really could be your next door neighbor yeah, or your grandpa. <laughs> exactly. That's what makes this especially scary to me and kind of why I wanted to do this yeah. case is because on paper, there's no reason for him to have grown up to be a monster. And that's really scary. Well, that it, means that anybody could, right? Because right? Yeah. normally, you know, you can kind of justify... Not condone what they're doing, but justify and kind of understand maybe why yeah. why they are like they are. And then I saved this last little part for last because this part really like was disturbing to me. With all of Bruce's other jobs, one of the things that he did is he worked the holidays as a mall Santa. What? Yeah, he was no. a Santa. And everyone said he was perfect for the part. Oh, just a jolly old guy, Silver Fox, right? right? Yeah. So can you imagine, like, when I thought about this, like, I thought about this for a long time, and I thought, can you imagine realizing that you have pictures displayed in your home or inside your family photo album of your child or children sitting on Santa's knee, having no idea that they were actually sitting on the knee of a horrific, disgusting serial killer? You know, all of us have that one picture of like forcing our kids to sit on Santa's knee and they're like bawling their eyes out. That's true. <laughs> and then you find out, oh, 
maybe they had a sixth sense that he was a serial killer. Right? When they're like reaching to the parents <laughs> to get right. off his Save knee. Me. Yeah. Oh, that is disturbing. Yeah. And when I was online looking, there were there were some people who had commented about that saying, I do have pictures of my kids on his knee type of a thing. And oh. what do you do? Do you get rid of those pictures? Do you keep like, I don't know. Yes, you destroy the evidence know. that you sat your kids <laughs> on a serial killer's knee. And he was proud of being a Santa. Like, he had posted pictures of himself on Facebook in his Santa suit during the holidays. He loved doing it. And he looked like a Santa. You know, he has the white beard. He's jolly looking. He's the right age. And then, this also was kind of crazy to me, but he is not the only killer who dressed up or worked as a Santa. After researching this case, I don't know if it's like, you know how when you buy a new car and then you keep seeing that new car everywhere? Yeah. So I don't know if it was because I learned about a Santa killer that I keep hearing about a Santa killer. But there was another killer, John Edward Robinson. He was a horrific serial killer and he also worked as a Santa. Well, maybe that needs to go into the cookie cutter mold then. Maybe. If you dress as a Santa. I know. Beware. Right? And then there was another Bruce. So another Bruce who dressed up as a Santa. This was Bruce Jeffrey Pedro. But he didn't work as a Santa. He decided to dress up in a Santa suit to kill his ex-wife and her family on Christmas Eve in 2008. Oh, So there's goodness. some other little killer Santas there for you. So beware of mall Santas or killers dressed up as Santa. <laughs> and with that, this has been the story of the truly evil and disturbing Bruce MacArthur. Dirtbag human, dirtbag murderer dirt bag if you're a mall santa don't be a dirt bag (laughs) but if you are one of our listeners let us know what you think on our facebook and instagram do you think bruce was a late bloomer or did he start killing decades before as suspected oh for sure there's dead bodies in flower beds all over ontario oh probably so gross well thanks for joining us today everyone we appreciate you listening join us next week when melissa will dig deep into another true crime story see ya bye And we. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's my line. (laughs) Because even like, you know, later we'll talk about, you know, you know, you know, like, wow. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm giving you the look. (laughs) The look. I need the intro. (laughs) That's not how it goes anyway. Nope. <laughs> That's how you go check it. I already said that. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. <sighs> Dirt bag Santa. We're doing it all over. <laughs> oh. Okay, let's okay. do it. Ooh, Canada. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah? Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.
Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.